first reading is from the book of Acts, chapter 1, and it's on page 1092 of the Church Bibles. Chapter 1, verses 12 to 26 of Acts. Then the apostles returned to Jerusalem from the hill called the Mount of Olives, a Sabbath day walk from the city. When they arrived, they went upstairs to the room where they were staying. Those present were Peter, John, James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James, son of Alphaeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas, son of James. They all joined together constantly in prayer, along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. In those days, Peter stood up among the believers, a group numbering about 120, and said, Brothers and sisters, the scripture had to be fulfilled in which the Holy Spirit spoke long ago through David concerning Judas, who served as a guide for those who arrested Jesus. He was one of our number and shared in our ministry. With the payment he received for his wickedness, Judas bought a field. There he fell headlong, his body burst open, and all his intestines spilled out. Everyone in Jerusalem heard about this, so they called that field in their language Acheldama, that is, field of blood. For, said Peter, it is written in the book of Psalms, May his place be deserted, let there be no one to dwell in it, and may another take his place of leadership. Therefore it is necessary to choose one of the men who's been with us the whole time the Lord Jesus was living among us, beginning from John's baptism to the time when Jesus was taken up from us. For one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. So they nominated two men, Joseph called Barsabbas, also known as Justice, and Matthias. Then they prayed, Lord, you know everyone's heart. Show us which of these two you have chosen to take over this apostolic ministry, which Judas left to go where he belongs. Then they cast lots, and the lot fell to Matthias, and he was added to the eleven apostles. second reading is from Mark, and it's chapter 3, verses 7 to 19, and this is on page 1004. Mark, chapter 3, verses 7 to 19. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the lake, and a large crowd from Galilee followed. When they heard all he was doing... Many people came to him from Judea, Jerusalem, Idumea, and the regions across the Jordan and around Tyre and Sidon. Because of the crowd, he told his disciples to have a small boat ready for him, to keep the people from crowding him. For he had healed many, so those with diseases were pushing forward to touch him. Whenever the impure spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. But he gave them strict orders not to tell others about him. 
Jesus went up on a mountainside and called to him those he wanted, and they came to him. He appointed twelve that they might be with him and that he might send them out to preach and to have authority to drive out demons. These are the twelve he appointed. Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter. James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. To them he gave the name Boanerges, which means sons of thunder. Andrew, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Thank you to Liz and to David for reading. Let's uh, keep Mark chapter 3 open, if you would, and we'll pray with those words in front of us. We want to thank you, Heavenly Father, for the opportunity to meet this morning. Um, We thank you, not wanting to take that freedom uh, to gather like this for granted. We thank you for an open Bible. We thank you for... A roof over our heads. We thank you for the ministry of your Holy Spirit to bring that word right into the heart of our lives. Uh, We thank you for your presence with us. Thank you for each other as uh, support and encouragement to us. And we pray that these blessings would count for good in our lives now for uh, you to bless us and through us to bless other people, we pray. So please, meet with us as we open your word now. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I don't know about you, but I feel it's a a very good thing in tough times that we're able to lift our eyes to Jesus Christ as his life is recorded for us in Mark's Gospel. We're in a series at the moment, picking up where we left off uh, some time back, and I suppose... I didn't particularly plan this passage for this situation, but I'm glad we're looking at Jesus Christ. Uh, Up until this point, if we'd got our wits about us and can remember the series we've had so far, um, there has been a sense of a gathering storm, and perhaps we can relate to that at least, even if our circumstances are somewhat different today. In Mark chapter 2 and 3, every single episode, there is opposition to Jesus And with each story, the conflict intensifies. But in our passage today, uh, we have also Satan, the enemy of souls, standing behind all the earthly enemies. And Jesus faces, as I've said, the gathering storm. In fact, he's the focus of the opposition. Got a picture that Ed's going to pop up for us here. I don't know how easy it is for people to see it, but Holman Hunt, one of the pre-Raphaelites, painted a picture of Jesus inside the carpenter's shop in Nazareth. Uh, Jesus stripped to the waist, he's standing by a a wooden trestle uh, on which he's put down his saw. And he's lifted both eyes to heaven, and the look on his face, slightly hard to read, even if you can see the picture well. Is it agony, or is it ecstasy, or is it both maybe? He's stretching his arms out at the end of a long day, and as he does so, the evening sunlight is streaming through the windows, casting a shadow in the form of a cross 
onto the wall. There's actually a, a tool rack behind which forms the cross beam, as it were, with the tools there as a reminder of the fateful hammer and nails that would come. Holman Hunt called that painting The Shadow of Death, and I think we can turn it off for the time being. But it's, it's obviously it's an imagined scene, but it's theologically accurate because the cross did cast its shadow over all of Jesus' life, really from birth onwards, and indeed even before that time. Certainly, when we get to the final verse of last week's passage, which uh, those who were here were looking at last week, chapter 3, verse 6, there's definitely an air of inevitability there about Jesus' death. Verse 6, Then the Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians how they might kill Jesus. So the gathering storm is there. How is Jesus going to deal with this watershed moment in the context of a lifetime of pressure and that ever-lengthening shadow of death? And a question it raises, I suppose we've seen this question before, is is his movement going to be snuffed out before it's even begun? So I wanted just to start there and encourage us to take some comfort right away as we begin. If we've got a sense of the shadow of death falling over us at the moment and the pressure that goes with that, Jesus is no stranger to that situation. You'd be peculiar if you weren't feeling the pressure at the moment. I don't know, whatever it will be that contributes to the pressure for you, but as stock markets crash, Areas where you thought you were in control, like uh, shopping or holidays or diaries, get harder to manage. Leave aside um, the fear of physical consequences of the virus. There is obviously pressure, and we do well to acknowledge that to ourselves and to each other, that the pressure is real. I wonder if you've noticed that your fuse is slightly shorter at the moment Or am I the only one in that situation? Or that somebody else's fuse is slightly shorter? Well, that's just a little feature of the fact that we're under pressure at the moment. Um, We need to be patient with ourselves and patient with each other. And as I said, there's obviously the shadow of death in the background for ourselves. Even if you're not feeling that for yourself at the moment... No doubt there are others you love for whom you do fear. Well, take stock that Jesus is not a stranger to this kind of situation. In fact, he faced it in a unique way and to a stronger degree than we do because out of love for us, he was taking on himself all the consequences of our sin and death. But face it, he did. So he's no stranger to this and he is up to it. I've got a little formula to help us with today's section in Mark's Gospel. This qualifies for about the most boring headings that I could imagine, but at least if we have it in visual form, you'll get excited about it. (laughs) He said, hopefully. Rejection by the leaders plus enthusiasm from the crowds leads to appointment of apostles and the formation of a new people of God. So let me, uh, I think you can turn off. We'll get to see these lovely foreheadings many times before the end. Rejection by the leaders to start with. That's obvious enough, isn't it, in in last week's chapter 3, verse 6. What I suppose is less obvious is how starkly it's put there. 
Because for the Pharisees and the Herodians to end up together as bedfellows, as it were, partners in crime, plotting, that is extraordinary. The Pharisees, if you're familiar with them, we probably know quite well. They're hostile to Jesus because he denies their righteousness before God. Um, We never actually put God in our debt by doing things for him. And that lesson was a particular dent to them, uh, to their self-righteousness. They wouldn't give up on their pride. With the Herodians, it was different. Herod was their leader. He'd had John the Baptist put in prison back in chapter 1 of Mark's Gospel. The reason was, it emerges later, John had told him not to marry his brother's wife and he wouldn't stop that adulterous relationship. So he wouldn't give up on his sin. So very different. One won't give up on their pride. Others won't give up on their sin. They're from the opposite end of the spectrum. The Pharisees are guardians of morality. They thought they couldn't hack Jesus. The Herodians are byword for immorality. And they can't hack God's revelation through John and then through Jesus. Now, we better take note in passing that they are a, a picture of the way we all reject Jesus. It's not just Israel's leaders who behave this way. We all do by nature. But specifically, the Pharisees and the Herodians represent together the leadership of Israel, rejecting Jesus, refusing to recognize that he's their true king. So on to a second element of my formula. I think we get an underlining in this one, do we? Yes. Rejection by the leaders plus enthusiasm from the crowds leads the appointments of apostles and the formation of a new people. This is really verse 7 I'm working from, or verse 7 and onwards. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the lake, and a large crowd from Galilee followed. So the crowds are still coming from locally. Um, The local crowds from Galilee don't share their leader's verdict, and it comes from further afield, isn't it? When they heard all that he was doing, many people came to him from Judea, Jerusalem, Idumea, and the regions across the Jordan, and around Tyre and Sidon. And we've probably got a map that we can have in due course. So what you get is this crowd being drawn. Uh, They weren't probably voting against their leaders as such, sacred and secular leaders, but they did recognize that here was someone unique who could handle their situation. So if you can see enough of the map to get a sense of it, well, probably not, but I'll give you a rough idea of what's going on here. Mark's list there covers all the points of the compass. You've got Tyre and Sidon, west and north. Um, He mentioned across the Jordan, that's in the east of the map, Judah and Jerusalem, and Idumea in the south. In fact, Idumea is off the map, 100 plus miles away, which is a long way if they did it by foot. Um, That can probably go off for the moment. Thank you, Ed. We're meant to be making a bit of a comparison, if we'd read and remembered, um, with the distance people travelled to hear John the Baptist in chapter 1. That time people came from the whole Judean countryside and Jerusalem, he mentioned. Mark's making a bit of a point here about Jesus being greater than John because he's got greater pulling power than the Baptist. So a rock has been thrown into the pond and the ripples are expanding outwards. The shock waves of what God is doing are spreading out, spreading out further, spreading out further still, wider and wider. 
in concentric circles. And as before, the crowds are putting real pressure on Jesus in verses 9 to 12. I love the, the Good News Bible pictures that I was sort of brought up on. And there's a lovely one of this, which I've taken the liberty of coloring in just for extra emphasis here. Um, this is a lovely, tranquil pastoral scene. It's a day of the beach, isn't it? Jesus sitting calmly in the boat. The crowd is, I suppose, about 100 strong. It's very orderly. A few sheep in the background, maybe. Uh, certainly there's somebody walking the dog or playing with the dog in the foreground. Even one or two people topping up on their tan and relaxing in the sun. A few kids playing leapfrog at the water's edge, it looks like. Which is not quite how it sounds in Mark's version. Because of the crowd, he told his disciples to have a small boat ready for him to keep the people from crowding him. For he had healed many, so that those with diseases were pushing forward to touch him. Whenever the evil spirits saw him, they made a hullabaloo as well. They fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. But he gave them strict orders not to tell others about him. And you might think I'm reading between the lines, but it looks to me like Jesus is desperate to keep a priority of preaching and continuing to do good. And therefore he's got one option he can pursue here. He goes for the boat option. And they're still in, up to the ankles, trying to get to him. So it is, as I said, a situation of huge pressure. Everybody knows that Jesus can deal with all the woes of human suffering. Now you've got the additional problem of the evil spirits testifying to who he is. And as before, we've had this before, Jesus silences them because he doesn't want press releases from hell even if the devil's forces are actually telling the truth. You've already got huge crowds. What's going to happen if people latch on to Jesus' identity as the Son of God or the Messiah without understanding why he's come? You'll have fake news running wild. So we're back in a similar situation to chapter 1. Remember the situation of huge pressure on Jesus there. And it raises the question, what's the future of this huge popular movement going to be? Will it be crushed under its own weight? How is Jesus to respond? Well, the answer is that he responds in a very similar way to what he did before. Surprisingly, he walks away from the crowds, out of circulation, up on a mountain. And you might be tempted to think, this is so shocking. How could he do that? It's not because he's heartless. That's obvious uh, from all we've seen of his character so far. Can it be that it's because he has other ways to address the human need that he's aware of, but we're not aware of? Let's have that formula up again. Rejection by the leaders plus enthusiasm from the crowds leads to appointment of the apostles and the formation of a new people. Leads on to the the following verses, 13 and onwards. Jesus went up on a mountainside and called to him those he wanted, and they came to him. That's not just a rerun of the magnetic effect that Jesus has had on the crowds. Uh, They were just drawn to Jesus, weren't they? In this case, the initiative was definitely with him. These were specific people that he wanted and that he called himself. For a reason. Verse 14, he appointed 12. 
footnote, designating them apostles, that they might be with him and that he might send them out to preach and to have authority to drive out demons. These are the twelve he appointed. Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. To them he gave the name Boanerges, which means sons of thunder. Andrew, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. As I said, the initiative lay with Jesus. He chose those he wanted, it says, for his own reasons. He was sovereign over the bad guys, Judas, who betrayed him. Sovereign over the rough diamonds that were, there were there. Hot-headed Simon the Zealot. Uh, I sort of have the image of the sons of thunder being, you know, built like sort of outdoor toilets, as it were. Huge, concrete people. Loud, larger than life, covered in tattoos from head to toe, no doubt. He chose them. But notice the number, 12. And that fits in with all we've seen already. The leaders of the old Israel have rejected Jesus. The people, for the moment, seem to have cast their vote with Jesus. And so now he must start again, a new Israel. Just as the old Israel had 12 tribes, so his new people will have 12 leaders or apostles. Which picks up a theme of fulfillment that um, we're sort of Cutting in on Mark, we've had a a break. But that theme of fulfillment has been there in the chapter beforehand. Jesus has showed how Old Testament laws... We've got a picture of this, haven't we? Yeah. Old Testament laws are not immediately to be carried straight over into the New Testament age as if they were laws directly for us. I think if I was redoing this again, I might have the blue lines at the bottom there slightly lower on the page than the blue lines on the left. Um, but the fine-tuning of these, these great bits of art is often hard to, to get right. Let me try and explain what this is saying, okay? In Romans 10, verse 4, Paul describes Jesus as the end of the law. He fulfills the law, and therefore there is a sense in which all the old law terminates with the coming of Jesus. Um, And that can be seen very clearly with the ceremonial laws of the New Testament, which are not, of the Old Testament, which are not commanded in the New Testament. But law as a category does continue. And therefore Jesus in the New Testament plainly does call on his followers to submit to his authority as the focus of the law, And there are moral standards which he calls his disciples to keep. For example, in the area of marriage. There won't be a direct crossover from the marriage laws of the Old Testament, but in many ways there are deeper, internalized laws on this topic. So there's not an external code like the Ten Commandments written on stone, but spirit-written, internalized Paul calls it the law of Christ in 1 Corinthians 10. I want to just as a footnote say, don't listen to theologians or others who say, all we need is Jesus, and we don't need to get specific about morality because he didn't. He did. He most certainly did. As Lord, he calls on us to submit to his authority. 
as the fulfillment of the law. So there are plainly moral standards which we're to submit to if Jesus is Lord. Now, let's have another slide just to develop this theme of fulfillment more. Not only is Jesus the fulfillment of the law, he's also the fulfillment of Israel. I'm sorry if it's hard to see that box at the bottom. But with Jesus, we're seeing the end of the old Israel and the start of the new people of God, also known in Galatians 6 as the Israel of God, also known as the church. So instead of the 12 tribes, we've now got a tiny new beginning in Mark chapter 3, gather around Jesus, 12 apostles. He's already called five, and now another seven are added. And that number, as I said, matters to Mark. The 12 is his favorite name for the apostolic band. A new nation is gathering around Jesus and around his 12 apostles. And obviously the names of the apostles mattered to him too. Why else give us the full list? The reason is clear enough when we see their significance. What did Jesus have in mind when he called them? Just have a look at verse 14 again. You see a couple of very specific things. First, that they might be with him. And second, that he might send them out to preach and to have authority to drive out demons. Now, the first of those was absolutely vital. He couldn't send them out to proclaim and demonstrate his kingdom unless they'd first been with him and understood everything. That's something we'll see again and again from now on in Mark's gospel. There's a focus on the crowds, yeah. But again and again, Jesus actually concentrates on the disciples and they get some in-depth private tuition. And of course, it's not just the teaching. The inner crowd of the disciples got to see things which no one else did. For example, three of them got front row seats at the Transfiguration when before their eyes Jesus was miraculously transformed in appearance. Spectacular. Then from Mark 8 onwards, virtually everything Mark records is done in private with the Twelve. So they were the focus of most of his last year. And I often find myself wishing that I'd been in on that, hearing that teaching, watching that life. But the answer, of course, is that because they were there, you and I don't need to have been there. We can hear what they heard through their ears. We can see what they saw through their eyes. And that's why before they could be sent, they had to be with him. Or no doubt they'd have come up with all sorts of half-baked ideas that they would have passed on if they hadn't had that uh, time with him. So that first reading we had from Acts chapter 1, you get a little... uh, Sidelight on this, the apostles are meeting to discuss who can replace Judas. And here's the indispensable qualification for apostolic ministry they come up with. It must be, according to Acts 1, verse 21 and 2, one of the men who've been with us the whole time the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from John's baptism to the time when Jesus was taken up from us. And that's exactly what Jesus had in mind in Mark chapter 3, that they might be with him. Then, the second thing can happen, that he might send them out, literally apostle them, to preach and to have authority to drive out demons. And those, of course, are the very things that Jesus had been doing. So what's happened? 
Well, these people who've spent time with Jesus are now in a position where he can send them with the very same authority he has. They are extensions of his ministry. Now, you might disagree with me, but I don't think that is something you can say of us today in quite the same way. Mark chapter 3, verse 14 is not a charter for us to preach and drive out demons because we haven't been with Jesus as they were and he hasn't apostled us as he did to them. This is about their unique authority as Jesus' commissioned representatives. They were with Jesus and they therefore go with Jesus' authority. And that means they are, they become the voice and authority of Jesus Wherever they go, he endorses them 100%. What they say, he says. Full stop, no discussion. It means we can't ever set them in opposition to Jesus as if he has a different position to the apostles on some issues. And reassuringly, it means that even if I can't see Jesus direct or hear Jesus firsthand because I'm living in the wrong place at the wrong time, all I need to do is to go to the apostles. And there is nothing that separates them from Jesus. I have direct access to the Jesus of history through them. That's why the names matter so much to Mark. He's giving us the names to make sure that the people we listen to for information about Christ are really qualified. Are they on this list? Hang on, somebody says, objection, Your Honor, I can't find Mark's name on the list. Well, I suppose the objection has to be sustained there. Mark's name isn't there. But there is ample evidence in the Bible and in other clearly Christian, early Christian writing that Mark has given us Peter's eyewitness apostolic account. That means as we read his account together, we are as privileged as those who witness the teaching and miracles firsthand. Okay, um, we're done on pictures for the time being. It's really time to draw for draw for us. I wanted to work through mati- the material we've got. Actually, I've got a little refresher, have I? Sorry. Sorry, you, you were more on top of it than I was. This is just a, a refresher of the formula just to help us unlock today's passage. Rejection of Jesus plus enthusiasm of crowds leads to appointment of apostles and the formation of a new people of God. Now, I think it is the last two lines that give us really the practical challenge from the passage. Because in Jesus' plan, the apostles are going to be the means of the formation of a new people of God. And in the context of opposition, it is Jesus' word passed on through the apostles which bring about a new Israel, brings it into being, and really can build up the people of God for all the challenges to God's rule. Now, the opposition to that kingdom took on a slightly different form in the days when Jesus was on earth in the flesh. It seemed to draw, we've seen, it seemed to draw Satan out into the open in a way that's different today. We are in Lent at the moment. We're remembering Jesus in the wilderness. And I don't think anybody would be so bold as to say that they have had 40 days undivided attention from Satan in the way that Jesus did. It's not a a direct timer, but the opposition to Jesus 
is every bit as real today, even if Satan has chosen to go under the radar, as it were, in his attack. And we face the overwhelming scale of darkness in the consequences of sin and evil. It is as real today. And the question raised, it seems to me, is how can we face it? We've got the pandemic on at the moment. That is a situation of huge human need. And it is a situation of human need which human leadership is not equal to. In fact, it's actually just the next in a long line of situations like that. The Bible says to us again and again, put not your trust in princes, in mortal man who cannot save. And you can go back with other situations that have exposed the inability for anyone, humanly speaking, to deal with situations, Brexit, deadlock, climate change, floods, and so on. They all say to us, human leadership alone cannot face those situations. But Jesus Christ is equal to those pressures. In his day, it wasn't bed shortages or communication system overloaded with calls to NHS helplines or whatever. But the pressure was real. And when he chose to meet it head on and heal, he could do so. So what are we to learn from his response to the pressure he faced? Does it sound too glib for me to say this, that we need to believe our beliefs, and particularly to believe our beliefs that it is through the apostolic message of Jesus that God's people will be brought into being, and built up. So his key provision to us in our situation today is the word of God and the people of God. I mean, you might hate me for saying it, but I I want to say to myself and to all of us, the challenge for us is to keep reading our Bibles. That is the route to sanity and stability and serenity a degree of it, in all the confusion. With the Bible in our hearts, in our heads, on our lips, we have something for ourselves and for others. We've got something to say. And around the Bible, we've got Christ's new community as well. And of course, that'll be under threat in lots of different ways. Some, as I said, will wisely feel they should stay away from gatherings from the time being. Maybe others will manage to have smaller meetings or virtual reality meetings via FaceTime. There are ways of uh, cracking this particular nut, aren't there, that uh, hopefully will, will stand us in good stead. But it seemed to me the message from the weekend away was, um, was so important. The believer's got to keep saying, I am a member of a body. I belong to that new people of God gathered around Christ. And even if I can't meet, I belong. Thank God for that. Nobody's got to go it alone. We've got each other uh, for the weeks and months ahead. And with the gospel as a whole to look at, Mark's gospel as it unfolds, we have that confidence that the forces of evil will be defeated, if not straight away, over time. I mean, even if the Prime Minister's 
bleak predictions are right and people are going to lose loved ones. I think it looks like that's highly likely. Even if people die, they still can overcome corona if they have an answer to the grave, which they have in Christ. So this message gives us the spiritual resources we need in the face of supernatural evil. Will we find ways to be with Christ through the Bible and to take our place amongst Christ's people around his word by whatever means we can uh, make that happen? If we do, then even in a crisis, we'll discover that it's through the word of God that the people of God is able to grow and flourish. Well, let's pray that it might be so. We want to just bow before you, Lord Jesus Christ, and acknowledge, as we've already sung, that you have the higher throne, the highest throne even, in the world. We thank you that we are able to draw close to you, Today, we thank you that uh, we have read about you and we know that you don't change. And we pray, gracious God, that we'd have that clear sense that you are with us, uh, with members of the church family who can't be physically present today, with others that we love who are on our hearts. We pray that you'd help us to hold out that possibility to those who don't know you yet. Lord Jesus, we long that you would bless us and make us a blessing in this situation. And we pray it for for your name's sake. Amen.